What's up? I'm Miles. And I'm Jan. We're the brothers behind Real Ballers Read, and this is The Book That Blank, a podcast where we talk to interesting people about books that are meaningful to them. Each guest gets to fill in the blank however they like. It can be the book that totally changed my life, the book that's way better than the movie, or the book that makes my stomach hurt from laughing. Today, we're talking with Nina Collins about the book that defined my life and helped me the most in a lot of ways is this book by Hope Edelman called Motherless Daughters. We had such a meaningful conversation with Nina about aging, how to think about death, our views of religion, and why our best traits can sometimes also be our worst. You'll enjoy this conversation just as much as we did. Here it is. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Collins. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Yes. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your, yourself and the book that you chose. Okay. So I'm um, 51. I'm a mother of four pretty much adult kids in their 20s. Um, I'm divorced. I had a long career uh, in book publishing when I was younger as an agent and as a scout. Mm -hmm. And then later in my career, kind of in my late 30s, early 40s, I, um, I sold my agency. I went to graduate school. I got a master's at Columbia in something called narrative medicine, which is mm -hmm. the study of um, how we tell our stories of grief and loss. Mm -hmm. And I did that in large part because um, of my mother who died when I was 19. I also, in that part of my life, in my early to mid 40s, got um, involved in resurrecting the career of my mom. So my mom had been a Black playwright and filmmaker named Kathleen Collins, who died in 1988, when I was 19, um, of a breast cancer that she had kept a secret pretty much throughout my entire childhood. I found out two weeks before she died that she was sick. And it was super traumatic. And I had a younger brother I had to take care of. And so this story had been kind of the defining narrative of my life for a long time. And I had been very angry and depressed. My twenties and thirties were hard. And I had, like, I was married to a much older guy and I had all these children, I had four kids and I was working really hard, but I was kind of um, not paying attention to what had shaped me so profoundly. Mm -hmm. And in my late thirties, I um, kind of realized that I needed to deal with it. So I sold my agency. I went to graduate school and did this kind of obscure program really because I wanted to think about death and um, kind of understand how my mom's death had affected me and how she had handled it and kind of get a better handle on her. And I started really delving into her work and she had died relatively unknown. I mean, she was kind of moderately known in the world of like black intellectuals, but um, she had had a couple plays produced, um, but her, she made two films, one feature and one short, and neither had ever been distributed. And you know, she'd never had anything published. Um, well, a play had been published, but um, so during that period, I um, had her film Losing Ground remastered and released and um, really thought I was doing it for my family. And unexpectedly, it became a huge success and kind of a media darling. And it was suddenly, the way I think about it now is she really is one of those cases like, you know, these genius artists who are discovered after they're long dead where she was working really before her time. Like the stuff that she made, right. it makes sense to me that it wasn't published in the seventies and the eighties. Like, so I ended up releasing her film, Losing Ground. And then I published a book, a collection of stories that I actually didn't even know existed until I was about 38. I found them in this trunk of her stuff. Um, 
a collection of stories which she had originally titled Losing Ground, but which I called um, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love. Mm -hmm. And then I also published a book called Notes from a Black Woman's Diary, which is like a compilation of her work. So that's kind of, and then the last thing about me is then after I went to graduate school, I started this Facebook, yeah, there are my mom's books, yeah. Um, and then I started this Facebook group called What Would Virginia Woolf Do to talk about aging. Mm -hmm. And that became unexpectedly a big success and grew to like 32,000 women around the country, around the world really. And then I wrote my own book called What Would Virginia Woolf Do? Exactly. <laughs> and, um, and, and, now, and now I've turned that business into something called The Wolfer and it's a social platform, Wolfer with two O's as in Virginia Woolf. And it's a social platform for women over 40. And it's kind of like a smart, savvy, smart girl place for women to talk about the second half of their lives. And we, we talk mostly about health, sexuality, relationships, mm -hmm. but also a lot about culture and books. Yeah, I, I love that you, you've said that it's like a politics-free zone. I like that a lot because I feel like politics has kind of overrun every other part of our life where we're thinking and talking about it. And then so to have a specific space where you're just like, you like, we try, although I have to say in the last year, I kind of changed my policy on that a little bit. We've now yeah. gone just because, I mean, it's actually interesting. I, I did really want it to be a politics free zone, but after mm -hmm. George Floyd's murder, mm. I, my daughter, Ruby, I have this one daughter who's very activist and um, she kept telling me that I really wasn't woke enough and that I was running this community for privileged women. And I was like, that's not true. Like we're really, you know, diverse and aware. And then I kind of started to realize that she was right in a way that I was, that I think like so many Americans, I started to realize maybe I was being complicit in not doing enough and kind of by saying it was a political free zone. I wasn't, even though I've always identified as black and I've always been very, we promote voices of all sorts of women. And it's very important to me that the community is diverse. I suddenly felt like maybe I wasn't doing enough. And so now we have like, we run an unlearning racism course in our community. And um, I kind of basically, basically finally came out and said, like, if you support Trump, you really just shouldn't be here. So I did kind of wow. change it. Yeah. yeah. And now, now that the election's over though, I have to say now that Biden is in office, it's kind of gone back to, I pretty much say like politics only if it relates to feminism, like this is not primarily a place to discuss politics just because there are other places to do that. Mm -hmm. But we are pretty established as a, you know, left-ish group. Right, right. So what? So what was your uh, experience re-re-rereading Motherless Daughters*? Or when? Or when was the first time that you read it? Um, well, it was so great when you guys reached out to me. I have to say, the question of what book, what's the question exactly? What book has most changed you? I think it was. Yeah, most impacted you. It's a, and for me, I, you know, I'm a lifelong reader. I've read, a, you know, I mean, I, work, I worked in publishing. I, I've read, I don't know how many books in my life, thousands for sure, um, thousands and thousands. So it was a hard thing. And for a minute, I thought about, I thought about my mom's books. You know, I thought mm -hmm. about Alice Monroe. I traditionally, I only read pretty much books by women. Like I'll occasionally mm -hmm. read a book by a man, but mm -hmm. I, I really am particularly interested in women's narratives. Um, but then I thought the one book that has probably kind of defined my life and helped me the most in a lot of ways is this book by Hope Edelman called Motherless Daughters, mm -hmm. um, The Legacy of Loss. It's a book that was published, actually I meant to look this up before I, because I do remember when I first read it, but let's see, the year, it was published 
in 94 i'm pretty sure 94 okay so i was four years out of college my mother was six years dead um and i was working for a literary scouting company in new york city a woman named Utah klein and the job it was kind of obscure i ended up starting my own company doing the same thing the job was to cover the American book publishing scene and report to European publishers and film companies on what was happening here so that they could buy translation rights. Mm -hmm. So I actually read the proposal to this book probably in like 1991 when I was working for Utah, when it was first sold. Oh, wow. And you know, it came across my desk and my mother was really newly dead and I was super traumatized. Like in those years, I, I cried all the time. I was really a wreck. I was suing my stepfather. I was like crazy. Um, and I remember reading the proposal and it was funny, I was thinking about it last night. My early memories of this book have a kind of distance to them. I think I recognized that she was literally speaking to me like Hope, I now know Hope, I've met her and we've become friendly much later in my life. Um, and she's a little bit older than I am. If I'm 51, she's probably almost 60 maybe, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, but she really wrote, it's, it's like, it's as if she wrote this book for me. And I think in the early years when I was follow, following it being published, read the proposal, then it came out, it got a lot of attention, it became a huge bestseller. I think the first time I read the whole thing was probably around 2005, mm -hmm. but I have since read it five or six times and I almost never reread books. Um, just as a rule, and I don't really rewatch movies. Like I just am no. too impatient and I have too many things I wanna do. Um, but because a mother loss is so profound and stays with you forever um, in such a deep way, my relationship to my mother's loss changes all the time. So every time I read this book, I recognize new things in it. Mm. And in fact, I reread it for you guys. Um, and it was interesting to me, I actually bought a new copy. I have my original old hardcover, but I decided to buy it in paperback because she updates it every once in a while. And it was interesting to see all the things that I, like all the pages that I, you know, I mean, there's so much in this book that speaks to me. I can't even tell you. I was like sending paragraphs to my children over the weekend when I was reading it. Um, yeah, it's super profound. And it reminded me again, and then of course, I. I mentioned to you earlier on today, March 18th is actually my mom's birthday. So my mom would have been 79 today because mm. she's been dead for 32 years. And I will say that I feel like her loss defined my life for a long, long time. And I don't feel like it does as much anymore. I think doing all the stuff that I did with her work. Mm -hmm. And I also wrote a memoir about her that I've not yet published, mm -hmm. but I think all the work that I did in my 40s for and about her really finally kind of put her to rest for me um, in, in the sense that like, I don't know, when I was driving out here to my house this morning thinking about doing this interview, I didn't cry. 10 years ago, I would have cried. Like it was still very, very fresh for me all the time. And it's just, now it feels like I get it. You know, I, I can't really explain it better than that. That said, this book, literally like i mean i can read you like there's a segment here where it says because a mother's death is as close as a daughter can get to experiencing her own the loss teaches her that all life and especially hers has limits and can end quickly sometimes without warning even though she typically sees the world as less controllable than other women do she sets explicit goals for herself and becomes determined to achieve them before her time runs out 
I, that is so me. Like I, yeah. I never look back in a lot of ways. I move ahead often in a, in a little bit of a reckless way. I mm -hmm. leave careers, I leave jobs, I leave marriages, I move houses because I always, I'm very aware that I could be dead soon. Like I live with death in a different way than people who don't. And I've also found that I'm drawn to people like romantically, most of the people I'm close to in my life have experienced profound loss early on because I think it's a it's a kind of club. It's like a different way of looking at the world. Yeah. Um, I also think that the way I I parented my children. Oh, I didn't. Where did I? Oh yeah, I think let's see. Hold on, page two nineteen because there was really something that made me super sad. But. Um, Anyway, there's a segment in here that talks about how I couldn't quite give my children, um, I, I forced them to be independent really early because yeah. I was always so afraid that I would die really young. Yeah. And so in some ways I didn't give them enough. Uh, I mean, I think I'm doing better at it now and I'm grateful I'm still alive and can kind of fix it. But I think I didn't give them enough emotional attachment. I think there was a part of me that was my, my mother's mother, I should say, also died when my mother, when my mother was an infant, her mother died. So we have this kind of legacy of mother loss. And she, I would say also, my own mother was a little bit detached in ways that she started to regret at the end of her life. And I think I did the same thing with my children. Like I was kind of so scared that they would experience what I went through that I kind of pushed them out of the nest really early. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this book talks about that. Yeah, and I, I thought that was interesting, that parallel between hope and you there uh, in terms of the independence. But then I was like, wow, it seemed like from all that I had read, your, your, your mom had also kind of made you independent, like very young, uh, yep. like, you know, going off to Europe as a teenager and uh, all these all these things. So it's like, it, and, then, and then you also have this line in, in your own book where it's like you're best quality can also end up being your worst. And I feel like the independence, you know, possibly after the loss of your mom seemed to have just like made, made you uh, yeah. burn out in a way because you just were trying to work so hard. Yeah, I think that's really true. And, and I see it in my relationships always. I mean, you know, it's funny how like the great thing about getting older really is the kind of wisdom like I am much I'm a much calmer happier person now than I was when I was younger mm. but we also kind of wherever you go there you are like I'm still mm. I still have those issues right like mm. I still you know boyfriends complain that I'm too independent that I'm not attached enough you know I, there there are ways in which mm. I was taught to go through life that it's just who I am mm -hmm. right. and, and that was who she was the the connection that I saw with hope um was just this uh profound like connection to truth and like truth telling mm -hmm. right so I, i've noticed it in like your writing as well as like what hopes talks about a lot is how the experience of losing your mother was like there was a lie almost um embedded yeah. within that experience and you know that shows in you know i think some of your work around not living with any shame and being like super honest about your own experience, even coming into the podcast and talking about it with us, I felt really reflected like, man, you know, Nina must have really, you know, um, had such a bad taste in her mouth just from like the the shock, the lie of it. Yeah. Um, 
to. No, it's so true. I know, can't bear. A life yeah. of being this honest, you know. It's really true. I can't bear any kind of, um, you know, I don't like people who are cagey. I, I can't bear any not, like, everything has to be direct and straightforward. And I get in trouble sometimes for being harsh or being too direct, but I do feel like I can take it. Like I, it's what I want. It's, it's the way I want to live is to have everything. And, and I do probably go overboard because of that trauma. And there was a lot of, um, you know, my, I mean, my parents were, I mean, they were young. Now I look back and, you know, in my, when I was a, a young child and they, the, the mistakes they made, they were in their twenties and they were artists right. and they were trying to figure their stuff out. But they kind of left me alone a lot with my grandmother. Like I, I was kind of unattended in ways that probably, you know, I should not have been and, um, and then lied to um, about a couple a few big things. And, you know, my father had been unfaithful. He had an illegitimate child for the end of their relationship that I learned about later. So there were like big surprises as a kid that really rocked my world. Um, so I definitely go overboard. You know, like my kids are so prepared for my death. It's not even funny. I talk about it much too much, I'm sure. But I don't want them to have any big surprises. Yeah, our, um, our like, you know, grandma at times will mention death and it's always just kind of shaky or just feels weird. But, you know, um, I guess that honesty is, is good too, you know, because if she's thinking about it and she's not, you know, expressing it, and it just kind of turns inward and isn't good for any anybody either. Did she raise you? How oh no, you? no. It's she uh, she's just older now and will like bring it up like, oh, when I'm gone, and we're like, no, yeah. we don't want to think about it. Yeah, yeah. I had two grandmothers. I had a white grandmother and a black grandmother, and I was really close to both of them. Probably a little closer to my black grandmother because I spent a lot of time with her. Mm -hmm. But my white grandmother toward the end would always say like, write your name on the back of things that you want. Like this painting behind me belonged to my white grandmother. Oh. And, and I like wrote my name <laughs> on the back of it. <laughs> so I think in, you know, in the wake of my mom's death, I really appreciate people being straightforward because we are all gonna die. And it is really sad and traumatic. And the more we can kind of look at it and also think about how we want to live our lives. And that's a large part of what Virginia Woolf is about or the Woolfer is yeah. like, let's be honest about what aging is like and let's try and figure out how to do it as best we can. But we also shouldn't pretend, I don't like the whole kind of everything about being old is super fabulous. I feel like that's bullshit. Like sometimes I get accused um, of being <laughs> you know, too negative about aging, but it's like some of it sucks, you yeah. know, and some of it is great and we are going to die. Like these are real things. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, uh, Hope talks about that in the intro of her book as well, how usually, well, no, actually, especially with, you know, um, you know, losing your mother, like whenever you bring it up, it's a conversation stopper. And I thought that was kind of funny because it's like, oh, we're starting our conversation with Nina about it. Uh, but I think I think that really reflected uh, just the general, like cultural issue around death. Like, we don't talk about it. Um, I know that we have never really learned how to, mm -hmm. you know, be there for someone who has passed away, uh, you know, for, for, for a bereaved person. Yeah. That's a really hard thing for young people. Yeah. Like you'll learn, but I, I remember when my mom died, my friends, we were all this age, you know, I was 19 and no one knew what to say to me. And mm. I mean, and then 
when I did the narrative medicine program, we talked a lot about my favorite class in that program was just like the history of death. And we talked about hmm. how to express bereavement and, you know, the best thing to do is just say, I'm really sorry for your loss, basically. I mean, to kind of just acknowledge it. And, yeah. um, and there are all sorts of crazy things people say, like she's in a better place or yeah, I don't know, there are all sorts of ridiculous things that people say that offend people, but they mean, they mean well, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a hard, it's an awkward, hard thing to talk about. What, what was it like going back to graduate school um, at a- uh, It was really fun, actually. Yeah. I had always kind of regretted that I didn't go to graduate school when I was young. And I tell my kids, so I'll tell you guys, go to graduate school if you're thinking about it. Cause <laughs> I didn't like, I had my brother to take care of and I didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. And so I quickly went into a career and just started working. And, but I always kind of, I had thought about law school. I had thought about becoming a therapist. Um, I kind of blew through college quickly. So I really regretted not having the opportunity to kind of luxuriate and just be in school and really yes. sink into it. And um, so when I finally did it, when I was like 37, it was great. It was a really intellectual, fun program. I, I did it over two and a half years. I read a lot of Virginia Woolf in the program. It was a very literary program. Um, you know, I got straight A's. I felt very proud of myself. I, I, I loved it. It was a great experience. And two of my kids are in graduate school now. I mean, they're being more professional. One is becoming a therapist and one is becoming a teacher. Um, so I feel like they're doing it. In a, there's a sense of expediency. Like this makes sense. Let's get mm -hmm. this done. Yeah. But um, I sometimes think now maybe I'll do, maybe I'll do it again. Some other graduate program at some point. Yeah. Just keep adding the degrees. Just well, it's just so interesting. I mean, I love to read. I'm, I'm always surrounded by books and yeah. 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 Uh, another, you know, big parallel that I found between your book, what would, what would Jane Wolf do and Hope's book um, is that like they both created communities, like very, mm -hmm. very communities about topics that were not being talked about. Um, so so we both wanted to ask, like, have have you joined like a motherless daughter group? And then what has your experience been like? You know, it's a really good question. Um, I'm so impressed with what Hope has done. I mean, I really I wrote to her this weekend when I was rereading her mm. book and said, like, you really gave the, the world a huge gift with this book. Mm. I mean, every time I mention it in my community, hundreds of women are like, oh, my God, that book changed my life. Like, it, it's really an incredible book. And um, you know, that serves such a unique need. Um, I have not been a motherless mother's group, but only for no reason. Her her community is very different from mine. Her community is completely, as I understand it, kind of user generated so that women create groups around the world. And I think they follow her book and maybe she comes in sometimes as a guest, but it's not like my community where I'm running a platform that people become members to. And I'm kind of there every single day. I'm like the den mother of this giant community. Hope is a little bit more like the spiritual mother of a community that kind of runs itself, that kind of emanates mm. from her work. Mm. Um, but she has definitely done more for the world than I have. I have, to, I mean, really her book is, it's amazing to me that this book didn't exist and that every time someone's mother dies for a woman, you can give her this book and she will be helped by it is, is pretty remarkable. Um, I like my book and I love my community. I think we do serve a real need, but there are other people talking to women about menopause and aging. I'm not the only one. <laughs>
I didn't know. I guess, yeah, you were the first. Well, actually, the truth is when I started my community, there really weren't. It, it's interesting right. how the world works that way. It was definitely like a zeitgeisty kind of thing because right. I started it for my need. Like I wasn't sleeping well. And I was like, I just want to talk about this stuff. And it really hit a nerve and I didn't really understand why. Now, almost six years later, there's a whole world of menopause stuff that's going on. There are communities, there are women's groups, there are books, there are Mm-hmm. it's become a real trend in fact there was an article in like Forbes recently that it's projected to be like a 600 billion dollar industry in the next 10 years so there's there's money now pouring into it and it's like a thing and so clearly when I started it I wasn't the only one feeling it it must be a generation I guess Gen X I don't really know why it's suddenly a thing but anyway it is so it's it's great to be a part of I mean the women I've met incredibly fabulous, interesting women. And I think we are trying to kind of redefine aging to a certain extent um, Mm -hmm. while also just being real about it. Exactly. Well, I I mean, maybe just right with the generations kind of growing into um, being more honest than, you know, your your parents about it. I feel like that, that makes sense that yeah I think you're right like it goes along also with like changes with LGBTQ stuff and race conversations and kind of everything right it's like why are we allowing people to live with shame that they for things they shouldn't be ashamed of right this is all just you know why can't we all just be who we are and celebrate it and break down some of those barriers and Mm -hmm. um it's also part of the I have to say it's like the um (laughs) <laughs> this is probably it's like the anti-old white man thing it's you know we're taking down the patriarchy that's the mm-hmm. idea in all these various ways right so women are reclaiming mm-hmm. menopause and it's the same thing it's kind of like saying fuck you like there's nothing wrong with us we're just mm-hmm. getting older um yeah it's like the you know there are all these beauty products that are called anti-aging and like why mm-hmm. should something be anti-aging like everyone's gonna yeah. age yeah. <laughs> i think that's just a stupid term yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I was having a, a kind of a weird feeling about that while reading, um, you know, motherless daughters, because, you know, we can be so like culturally, we can be so uh, adoring of like children and, you know, the 20 year old like woman who like, you know, has everything going for her, but then for like a motherless daughter or for someone who's like, you know, aging well at 50 or 60, like there isn't a whole lot of attention paid in the same way and i think i think it is attributed to this like this patriarchy that we're living in right where yeah yeah youth is valued for some reason um when you know there's so much that we can learn from people who are aging there's so much that we can learn from people that have passed away right yeah and by the same token as i get older i'm starting to realize that i need more like younger friends i mean like i watched the grammys the other night and i really this was the first time i watched the grammys like i didn't know who most of the people were and i also could not get over these women's bodies like are they real like they looked like like they were incredible was that woman dua lupa like oh my god she was like plastic but fabulous um you know, we want to celebrate everyone. We want to, we, we should all be learning from each other. And um, yeah, it's, an inter- it's interesting. And the nice thing about getting older is the way your perspective changes and you can kind of appreciate all that's behind you. And it's not as, um, 
it's not as angst filled anymore. I mean, honestly, for women, I mean, you guys are men, so it's different. But for women, there's so much fear about getting older and kind of losing your looks and not being taken seriously. And the unexpected gift really is how um, much happier you are. <laughs> so right. it's it's better. My mother actually said to me, my mother said that the 40s were the best years of her life. And then she died at 46. Um, so that was a bummer for her, but for everyone. But um, I totally know what she means now, because now I feel like I'm at the beginning of my 50s and it's by far the best time of my life. Mm -hmm. Good thing. Yeah, we 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 want to keep peaking every day, just as you, you will. You <laughs> definitely will. You guys are babies. Yeah. So much of you. So cute. Uh, I, I love I love this like almost paradox or dynamic that you've expressed just around being so close to death, wanting to learn about it, embrace it, but also having such a life affirming perspective. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think all the studying I did. I also like worked in hospice and I in palliative care for a few years after graduate school, and I I was like a I became a life coach and I did a bunch of end of life trainings. Um, I, I think it really helped me think about, you know, how we celebrate birth and when babies are born and it's so exciting and like watching the birth of a baby is so incredible. And I really did come to think about death in a similar way. Like it's a huge, incredible transition and, and probably one of the best gifts we can have is to do it well, thoughtfully and lovingly and in the way we want. And so it's not to say it's not scary or sad, but I think it's, really important to affirm the the naturalness of it the inevitability of it and in a lot of ways the beauty of it um and and actually there's a great book this could be someone should write about this book for you there's a great book that's coming out called heartwood the art of living with the end in mind by a woman named barbara becker mm. and i did a program with her a zen it was like an end of life zen buddhist program with her a few years ago um and met her, but never really knew her well. And then a couple of weeks ago, she sent me this galley, it's coming out in May. And she ended up becoming like, I think a Unitarian or an interfaith minister. Mm -hmm. And she wrote this book and it's beautiful. And it, it's, oh. it's really about that. It's about living and keeping death in mind all the time and um, revering it and, you know, learning from it. And is it, um, is it Ernest Becker who wrote the de denial of, of death? Is she related to him by any chance? No, but that's interesting. She's not, and the reason I, for a minute I hesitated, her father, I think was a doctor who went to medical school with Sherman Newland, who wrote The Way We Die. Oh, so cool. she has that connection, but no, I don't think she's connected to the person you're referring to. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a great book. I really was impressed with it. So. Do, you, do you study uh, Zen Buddhism as well? Or was that just kind of like a... I, you know, I'm not, I'm religious at all. I was raised, my mom was like Presbyterian. And for a minute, I thought about taking my kids to like Unitarian church and then never really did. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say the tenets of Buddhism really appeal to me. You know, the idea mm -hmm. of letting go of the outcome and impermanence and all the, all the basic core values of Buddhism mm -hmm. certainly speak to me, yeah. yeah. So I did that program. I just really admired these guys. It's called like the Zen Center for Compassionate Care. Um, Chodo, and I can't remember his partner. They're on 23rd Street in Manhattan. And they came after my graduate program, I worked at a hospital in Brooklyn called Maimonides for a few years. And I had those guys come and do 
sessions with the residents um, to talk about end of life practice. And uh, I just really deeply admire them. So yeah, I like Buddhism a lot. I wouldn't claim to be a Buddhist. I wouldn't claim to be any religion. Yeah. What about you guys? Are you religious? We were just talk talking about this yeah, the other day, which is why it's so so funny. Because um, I feel like, mm, what do I want to say on air in the spirit of honesty, though? Since I'm with you, ah, what were you raised? How about that? What Christian? Um, and I think I think because of possibly things like homophobia or Islamophobia that were kind of around um, or things that we were hearing from other Christians, we were kind of like deterred from that or, or like felt like, man, if this is what being a Christian's like, am I a Christian? Yeah. Um, and we also did this like interesting confirmation program where we were, you know, taken to all sorts of um, places of the faith and holy holy places, temples, uh, monasteries, to really like see if Christianity in a sense was what we wanted to um, to do. Um, mm -hmm. And there was no really defect defecting from that program either. Like you couldn't have uh, yeah. change up. But yeah, um, like today, you know, I, I still think I'm a Christian. I think there's a lot of, you know, social, consequences that I think of when I use that term and, and yeah yeah it's it's important to think about I mean there's certainly nothing I guess I feel about religion you know the kind of classic um opiate of the masses thing does really yeah. speak to me I feel like religion has been used to keep people down hmm. um but I also value the comfort it brings people and and I certainly value the cultural trappings is the word that comes to mind but that's too negative the <laughs> cultural support that religion offers a lot of people and yeah. a lifestyle and all that stuff is beautiful and so but when i think for me personally about kind of my values right. there are things about christianity that don't appeal to me i don't like the whole um good bad you know the whole um not that I don't believe there are some things that are good and bad. For the mm -hmm. most part, I don't really believe in that concept, like sinning and confessing. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like all that stuff. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's, again, it's shaming, it's labeling. Mm -hmm. I, um, yeah. And, and I, I think the more we can live with ideas of impermanence and of um, letting go of the outcome, the more peaceful we'll be like, you know, the whole idea that you can only control what you do and not what anyone else does is a great mm. lesson in life that takes a long time, I think, to really absorb, but it's kind of stay in your lane, live with integrity. Those are the kind of things yeah. that I. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, because we we definitely bounced around too of like different denominations. Mm -hmm. uh, but like something that really sticks with me is there was one day when we were going around in like Sunday school, all the students were like, the, 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 the teachers were like asking us, what are you most afraid of? And everyone's saying like spiders or snakes or whatever. And then it comes to my turn and I was like, I'm afraid of dying. And oh, don't worry about it. Like, you know, you believe in Jesus, like you'll go to heaven kind of deal. I was, crying, I was crying myself to sleep for probably like two weeks, but you know, oh I, my God. I, think, I think that that, that fear is actually what um inspired my like interest 
uh, really obsession with like philosophy um, mm -hmm. and religion. And so I'm kind of like you, like I, I, I'm hesitant to claim, like, I'll, of course I'll claim like, you know, how I was raised, right. um, but I'm at the point now where I feel like I can't even, I couldn't even point to like a specific like religion or text. Uh, Cause I kind of just like take mm -hmm. from. It's, right? Yeah. It's or, almost like you have to figure out your own religion. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and even that has social consequences too. Right. Because, um, you know, of course, like you can't just go somewhere, show up, say that you're a certain religion and then have people who like you can immediately connect with. Right. I think there is something, um, there is something like individual and kind of, I don't want to say isolating, but it is, it does put you in like kind of a different realm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As opposed to like three home, you know? Yeah, it's true. Actually, my daughter, Ruby, the one I keep mentioning when she was five, she developed a real obsession with death. And she kept saying, every day that you get older, you're closer to death. And I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <You know? It's> like, <laughs> the things kids say. Um, yeah. yeah, religion's interesting. No, I, this question that you've asked in, in, in your book about uh, how your best qualities can end up being your worst, I really resonate with that now too, thinking about this conversation because like I've always found myself to be a very open person, very willing to change like, like, like you, um, wanting to be open to everything and everyone. But I think at, at the same time that has brought feelings of like, not feeling stable or kind of feeling like I don't really have an intellectual home or spiritual yeah. home, like a spiritual center to come back to. And so it yeah. makes sense when you say like, well, religion feels like a thing to keep people down because you're so used to being like free and like unrestrained. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel too and want to, to, to feel. Uh, mm -hmm. But I feel like it also comes with its own, you know, side effects of like feeling I think that's so true. Yeah. It took me a long time. Like I've always been really entrepreneurial, mm. but then I also often feel so kind of out there. Like, what am I doing? And I'm not doing anything that anyone really understands. And where, how is it going to be resolved? And so yeah. sometimes I feel like, oh, I just wish I had like a career, like a, a simple, yeah. straightforward career. And then I had to finally accept, like, this is just the way I am. This is the way I live. And yeah there are really good parts of it and there are really difficult parts of it. And so, yeah, it's like, um, and, and my, certainly my impetuousness is an example of that. Like I make decisions really, really quickly. Um, and it mostly serves me really well, but I, it also means, you know, you can you make mistakes, you kind of plow through things. So. No, yeah, that, 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 re that reminds me of, I think a thing, Hope was saying, Hope Edelman was saying towards the end of the book where she says like motherless daughters understand from a very young age, like the power of like re renewal and rebirth. Um, and just like always kind of going through these seasons and yeah, just changing as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she, yeah, she's actually going through a divorce right now, I think. And I really feel for her because it's such an incredibly painful thing. But, um, but I think that's true. I think people who have experienced early loss continue to experience loss in a very different way from, like, I, I, I'm always amazed by people, you can meet people in their 50s or 60s who have never had any real loss. Mm -hmm. And 
I can't imagine what that would be like. I mean, it sounds awesome, but it sounds like another planet to me, really, you know? Right. What's the uh, relationship with your brother? I, I know you've written somewhere that like your mom, you know, made you the legal guardian of him when you're like, you know, 19 and he was yeah. uh, 15, I think. Yeah, he's adorable, my brother. Um, his name is Emilio, E-M-I-L-I-O, and he's done really well. And we have a really good relationship now. Um, he's only three years younger, but for most of our lives, it felt like 10 or 15 years. Like I was very much the kind of mother figure. And mm. um, he was a wrestler. He was a star wrestler in high school, luckily, because we had no money. And he got recruited and got a full ride to Michigan State as a wrestler at like the 190 pound weight class. And he was very good at that. Perfect. And then he went to graduate school and got a master's in sports administration. And then he got a job at the NBA, which I actually helped him get because I knew someone. And um, he ended up working there and rising up and having a really successful career there for like 20 years. And now he's a partner at a big sports marketing firm. And um, he's really successful and he's married and he's got two little girls and he's like super loving husband and father. In a lot of ways, he's had a much more, um, I'd say, stable conventional life than I have he's mm. he's a really good even guy mm. I mean I can't speak to his inner life but he's just a lovely person and for a long time there was tension between us because I think he kind of like I talk about I think about my mother's and my own emotional inaccessibility sometimes he always felt like he wanted more from me and I felt like I felt resentful like I'd kind of given up my youth in a lot of ways for him like I really took my responsibility for him very seriously and um, mm. felt like no one took care of me. You know, I took care of him, but no one took care of me. So there was definitely an undercurrent of a lot of love, but also resentment. So he would kind of want more from me and I'd be like, no, like mm. <laughs> this is what I'm doing for you and that's it. And then I'd say in the last 15 years or so after my divorce and as my kids started, he's been a great uncle to my children, which I really have appreciated. And, um, and as he's grown up, we've just become more equal. So now we actually have become more like friends, which is really lovely. I no longer feel like he's the child who I have to carry on my back. <laughs> That's awesome. Was he was he present for like any of the work you were doing? Just like revival? Yes, it's been so nice for him. I mean, I think it's also been a little sad for him because even though we're only three years apart, I don't know if you guys experience this in your own family, but every kid has a different experience of their family. And so I know much more of the history than he does for some reason, maybe because I'm the girl, maybe because I was the oldest, um, but I have a much different sense of our mother's life and um, knowledge of all the players. And so I think he's super grateful to me and it's been beautiful for him to watch and he really appreciates it. But I think it has also made him feel a little bit sad that he doesn't have quite the connection to her story that I do. I think it probably mystifies him a little. Like she adored him and, um, but you know, maybe it's a mother daughter thing. I don't really know. Or, or maybe it really is because she put the burden on me. And so my, my relationship with her is more intense mm -hmm. in a different way. Um, I think she expected of me stuff that she didn't expect of him. Yeah. So he's, I, you know, I think he, I mean, I think overall, I, I think he'd probably agree that he's, I mean, I'm sure he has pain, tons of pain, like everyone does. And like anyone who's lost a mother does, and he didn't really have a father, neither of us did. Um, 
but in some ways, I think he's had an easier time than I have. He certainly hasn't been as angry as I have or as sad mm -hmm. as I have, at least outwardly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was a big open question from like motherless daughters, right? It's like, what about the motherless sons? She, like hope, hope herself isn't yeah. like- um, Yeah, it's a good point. Who writes that book? Yeah, and what happens, right, to, to those boys? I mean, it, it is a really good question. My current um, partner, romantic partner, lost his father when he was a child. And, um, you know, that's, that's a whole other can of worms, right? The fatherless yeah. boys. And yeah, the fatherless boys. sons, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although Hope does do some research in her book and talks early on about how children who lose fathers don't seem to suffer as much. Oh, as yeah. yeah, they recover They recover much faster too. They recover yeah. faster and that's After kind of interesting. Years, it, it doesn't really surprise me because mothers, there's a way in which when you lose your mother, I don't know what your mother's story is, but you lose your whole anchor. Like mothers mm -hmm. kind of generally provide the culture of the mm -hmm. family yeah. and so when you lose your father, you lose a lot. There, I mean, I, there's no doubt I've lost a ton by just having a, a not present father, mm -hmm. but there's a way in which your mother is the, the grounding force in your universe. So when you lose your mother, it's like, it's so destabilizing, you know, it's, um, you know. No, yeah, she was saying how like, people always visualize their mother as like eternal. And yes. always being there to nourish them. I love that. Actually, I found that again when I read it this time this weekend. She talks about how she 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 quotes women saying, "I never could imagine that I would lose my mother," and that's how I felt. Like when my mother died, I was like, "Like what?" Like it felt literally yeah. impossible that my mother could be dead. <laughs> like you just it just doesn't even you know. Mm -hmm. It's weird and it's reassuring to read in her book that other women had that feeling because that's exactly how I felt. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I still, for years after my mother died, I had this recurring dream that she was still alive, but she just didn't want to see me. Like, it was like, I couldn't, that some part of my psyche couldn't believe that she actually had left the planet, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think, you know, the whatever the Kubler-Ross stages of death, I mean, part of one of the stages is denial. Um, but maybe in some ways when you lose a, ch a mother young, mm -hmm. I, mean, I think there's a way it arrests your development to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Like, I really don't think that I became a, a full-fledged adult until mm -hmm. the last five or 10 years. Like, I, I think I was stuck in some sort of, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, weird place of grief for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. So if Mother's Daughters is the, you know, number one book that, impacted you, what would you say is possibly the number two book? Um, or, yeah. you know. God, honestly, there's so many. I would have to make a list. Like really, there's so many. Like I think about um, Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook, which I read when I was like 18, loved, or Jean Reese, um, Wide Sargasso Sea, or anything by Alice Monroe. I mean, I guess I would say really the number two book that changed my life is probably my mother's book, Whatever Happened to Interracial Love, just because that book tells the story of her 20s. And it really explained a lot to me about where I come from. And, you know, so in terms of really fundamentally changing how I feel, um, 
but there's so many. Oh, another great book I love, love, love is How We Die by, um, uh, hold on, I have to Google it. It's such a good book, hold on. How We Die. Oh shoot, no, it's not the Sherwin Newland. Sorry, I'm forgetting. It's the other one by, um, oh, 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 Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. Yeah, yeah. That's the one. That yeah. is a fantastic, fantastic okay. book. Um, so that's a book I read much later in life. I read it probably only in the last 10 years. Um, yeah. But Being Mortal is really wonderful. That's very great. So I don't know, there's so many books that have, this, and this I'm book I just talked about, this, this Hartwood book is probably one of the most moving books I've read this year. I love this mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. yeah we're we're on about the same path as you are we we're just some literary guys we love reading uh you know publishing seems really fun just to like be sitting reading you know it is so fun well you guys should certainly use me if you can i mean i'm sure you're on your way and you know what you're doing but one of the fun things i've done with the wolfer <laughs> is um i cover books all the time because it's a world i know and so right. and now i've kind of established so people send me galleys and so it's a little bit like back in my 20s when i was covering everything in publishing mm -hmm. um and actually there's a guy i should introduce you to named yadon israel I'm going to put his name in the chat because he's a friend of mine in Brooklyn and he is really cool. You should follow him on Instagram. And he just got a job as a senior editor at Simon & Schuster because, you know, publishing is very, 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 very white. And that is really starting to finally change. I think really like this year for the first time, it's really shaking up. And um, Yadon is super cool. So you should meet him and get on his mailing list. Like what you want to do is just meet a lot of people in publishing and get them to start sending you interesting stuff. Um, do you know Gloria Deem also? From Well Read Blacker. Yeah, you got to meet Glory. Gloria's mm -hmm. awesome. Yes. Yeah. I can introduce you to any anyone you want, anyone that I can help you with, I'm happy to. Um, Gloria, would, Gloria would be really cool for you to know. And uh, yeah. No, this is me. Publishers uh, Weekly. You have to read Publishers Weekly every week. Yeah. They they still have a magazine that publishes. <laughs> they do. Yes, they do. There's an guys <laughs> are so young. I'm sure there is a digital version. I read regular hard copy version, but it's actually very useful if you want to cover books because it tells you the industry news and then there's also a big review section. And so it, it gives you a sense of what's upcoming that's really important. Um I don't think that's too much of an old school tip. I think that's actually still a good tip is to read Publishers Weekly. No, we'll <laughs> do, we'll do, man. Uh, so possibly last question, you know, uh, our audience is, you know, younger, younger folks. So what advice would, would you give, you know, to a recent college graduate or, um, should you know should we get married should we go to grad school any big life to, 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 oh god I have, it's so funny i have so much advice now i would say okay don't so one mistake people make all the time is like think everything is about you it's usually not about you people are busy people are doing other shit they don't really care what you do if you like write a book and don't sell it or don't get a job like no one cares no one's looking at you i think that's like a really good piece of advice do, do what you want to do and try yeah. not to think about people thinking about you because they're really not thinking about you um i think if you can have your own business and i think if you can buy a piece of real estate early um 
I mean, I, this is more advice I give for women than for men, but it applies to everyone. You know, financial independence is huge. And I, not everyone agrees with me about real estate, but I think owning an early piece of real estate will keep you, you know, the whole issue of, interge of intergenerational wealth and particularly for black people in this country is so real. Yeah. And uh, I feel really strongly about that. And not everyone is entrepreneurial by nature, but I think if you can be, you should be because companies, I just think working for yourself and starting your own thing is just a much happier way of life. Um, <laughs> We're starting to feel that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you could, and not everyone can do it and you have to have other experiences and it's not like it's the only way, but I think it's right. a good way. Um, I don't know, I could probably come up with like 80 more things, but I hope those I are probably a few good pieces okay. of advice. Well, thank you so much yeah. for joining us on the show we are starstruck honestly we've been like oh you're so sweet it's so nice to meet you. thank you so much for listening to our amazing conversation with nina collins go ahead and check out her book what would virginia wolf do and mother's daughters by hope edelman on bookshop and of course follow us at real bards read on instagram thank you so much and we'll catch you next time